We're in the middle of this sermon series, kind of towards the tail end. In fact, uh, next week is the last week of the heart of Christ. And I've loved preaching through it because I love talking about what God is really like and how he feels about us. Uh, We started talking about how Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's accessible. You can get to him. We talked about how he's empathetic. He's been here. He's done that. He knows what you go through. We talked about how he saves to the uttermost, like you can't get any worse and he still saves you. Uh, Last week, we talked about how he's an incredible friend that has an open door policy that you can come and go as you please. And today, we talk about a very simple piece, even though we make it so incredibly complex. And here's what it is. He loved us then and he loves us now. So let's pray and we'll dive into the word. Heavenly Father, this morning as we celebrate and rejoice what you're doing here in this church, I ask that you will open our hearts and ears and minds as we understand what you're really like and how you feel about us. So bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. There are so many adoption stories that I love to hear about. Sometimes you see videos of them. Sometimes you know some of these people that are adopted. Um, I have a friend that was adopted. Here's a picture of him. Uh, Here it is. This is Greg Payne. There he is, tall dad, husband there in the middle. He's married to Jackie, and they have two kids, Olivia and Lucas. They are some of my very best friends in the whole world. Um, Jackie was the office manager at Marietta when I pastored there, and she's one of my best friends, and her husband, Greg, is a fantastic guy. Now, here's the thing. Greg, uh, I just found out recently, like in the last handful of years, that he was adopted. Didn't know it. He's an incredible dude. He He can code on a computer. He can fix cars. He can um, uh, play the saxophone. He's hilarious. And as I find out about him being adopted, I, I wonder about his family life and where he came from. Here's the story. Just a few years ago, his wife Jackie was having incredible migraines, just awful migraines. And so she gets onto 23andMe, which is a genealogy uh, website, to see if the extended family struggled with these migraines as well. And so Greg, thinking about his family tree, he hops on there as well, puts in all his all information, and he gets a, an email from some 82-year-old lady that he's never met before on the other side of the United States. And she says, hey, I think we're related. So they talk back and forth, and they can't figure out how they're related, and so he just lets it go. Well, a few, month or two later... Uh, this 82-year-old woman, she's having dinner with her nephew, and as they're talking, she says, you won't believe this. I I was on uh, 23andMe, and I found someone that's related to us. He lives in Georgia. He's redhead. He's 38 years old, this and that. And the nephew begins to fill in some of the blanks about who this guy is. And so she says, how do you know this? And he says, because he's my son. So the dad, Jim, reaches out to Greg, and they begin to talk back and forth, and they eventually meet each other. In fact, here's a picture of the family. There is Jim on the left. You see Greg in the middle. I think this is one of the few times that they've been hanging out together, and and they're so similar. They look the same. They talk the same. They have the same sense of humor. I mean, you, you can, anybody could tell that they are father and son. Now, here's the thing. The father, Jim, found out that he was a dad three weeks before Greg was born. He was at an Adventist Academy. He got a phone call as a 17-year-old boy from the mother. The mother says, hey, I'm pregnant. You're the dad. I'm going to send you adoption papers so that you can sign them because this child is going to get adopted. The dad never met the son. Jim never met 
Greg, just years ago, they meet for the very first time. And what's amazing is that the day that Jim found out about Greg, he loved him. Never met him, didn't matter. It was his son. He loved him. Now they meet each other and he still loves him. He loved him then and he loves him now. The heart of Christ is the same because he loved us then and he still loves us now, now that we are adopted into his family. See, we humans have a problem. It's a problem with confidence. We struggle with confidence. Uh, We're always thinking about escape routes and worst case scenarios, and we're always worried about things. And when it comes to God, we tiptoe around him too, waiting and wondering if we're making him angry. We wonder if we're offending him. And even though we believe and know when God says, please come to the throne of grace, it's always available to you, we still wonder if, uh, if, we, if God still loves us because we sin. Did, did he only have grace for us then? What about now? Uh, does, when we screw up and fail and fall over and over again, does he still love us now? Is he annoyed that we can't figure this sin thing out? Did he love us then, but not now anymore? If you wonder this, then I have some good news for you, and it's in the Bible, and you can open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5 as we jump into this passage. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There's a blue one in front of you, and you can follow along on page 798. You'll read the same words that I'm reading. Let me give you some context. Uh, The book of Romans is so incredibly powerful. It paints the picture of how God feels about us. It shows the gospel message as clear as day. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul's already talked about justification, which is a huge word for basically our sinfulness being covered with God's sinlessness because of Jesus. And he starts to give us a timeline of our journey with Jesus. And Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 5, right there in verse 6, two paragraphs. Now here's the thing about Paul. He's smarter than everybody in the room. The guy was so intelligent, he was well-educated, and the way he writes is so intense, it's hard to even read. In fact, in theology school and, and seminary, they always make you parse some of Paul's writings because it's really hard. There's so many intricate words in there and compound sentences. It's hard to read, but there's so good stuff because it's intentional. So Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, here's what my Bible says. If you're there, say amen. All right, here we go. Here's what it says. Paul says to you and me this morning, he says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, maybe your version says weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, let's keep reading a couple of verses. Paul says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the, de- the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled now, shall we be saved through his life? Last verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's a mouthful. Paul, can you please write simple sentences from now on? I mean, that's loaded. It's hard to even get through that. Yet every word is intentional. Paul says at the very beginning there, he says, Christ died for the ungodly. I I love how he paints this picture of who would you die for? 
Sometimes in Bible studies, I ask the people, who would you die for? Would you die for your brother, your sister, dad, mom? Just recently, a friend of mine, he, uh, he was having health issues and he needed a kidney transplant. And uh, he was telling me about this and I thought to myself, well, I got healthy kidneys. Maybe I could give him one of mine. And as soon as I thought that, I thought, well, wait a minute. If I give him one of mine, what if my kid needs one here in a few years or my wife needs one here in a few years? They're family to me. Like, I, I need to give them first, not a friend and definitely not a stranger. Yet Paul describes the, the gift that God gave us through Jesus, that he gave it to the scum of the planet, the worst of the worst, not his family, not his friends. He gave it to the most undeserving. In fact, Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in the middle of our sin. That's beautiful. I love this message. He did the unthinkable and died for the worst. It's crazy to think that Jesus didn't just come halfway to us and say, well, you clean up a little bit and I'll meet you halfway. He, he didn't, uh, like a stock portfolio, he didn't look at the history of, of how we have been to see if we would become good people later. He didn't just cautiously approach it because that's not his heart. In the midst of us humans running away from God in defiance of him, being rebellious, blocking his calls, not returning his text messages, it's at that moment that the prince of heaven waved goodbye to the adoring angels. And he came to this planet to live with rebels, to fulfill the divine strategy, to rinse muddy sinners to clean them up, to pull them into his heart, even as we squirmily try to get our way out so that we can scrub ourselves. He said, no, 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 I'm coming all the way to you, filthy and ugly and dirty, and I want you. In fact, Paul is so intentional in this passage, and he repeats himself, and I think it's for emphasis so that you can't miss this. He says the same thing three different times, just different wording. I don't know if he was running out of content or if he just uh, was, was emphasis here. He says the same thing three times. Verse six, it says this, when we were still powerless or, or weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse eight, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says this, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled in through the death of his son. He's got a trend going on here. Three phrases, three times, Paul says the same thing. He describes what we look like before Jesus. Weak, sinners, and enemies of God. It's ugly. This is not a good picture of what we look like. And while we looked like that, that's when God decides to leave heaven to endure hell for you and me. It's what God, that's when God decided to show his love for us. You know, it's interesting that Paul uses this word show to describe uh, what God did for us. Uh, in Greek, this word show, it means to demonstra demonstratively declare. It means without a shadow of a doubt. It means to put beyond questioning. So the Bible says, God showed his love for me in this. And when I, when I hear this, it makes me understand it better. It's like he did this with emphasis, with an exclamation point. With, uh, with eternal emphasis so that you could never forget, we eternal evidence and proof without a shadow of a doubt about God's love for you. It's kind of like this. There are trends all over the place. You see trends all the time. Hair trends, and I praise the Lord that being bald, that trend is in right now. When it goes out, I'm screwed. It's over. 
Uh, trends about hair, trends about clothes, trends about uh, different cars, all sorts of different trends. I don't like trends. I think they're dumb because if you spend your life trying to be trendy, then you can never just be the person that God designed you to be. So I just don't like trends. But there's trends all over the place, including this one that I have seen recently. Uh, the trend is in the wedding ring department. Maybe you've seen this before. And now it used to be that when you'd get married, you'd get this ring, or for some of you older Adventists, you get a watch. No judgment. I get it. My parents got the same thing. Uh, and you put that ring on, and that baby doesn't ever come off. In fact, um, <laughs> I was talking to Caffrey, my oldest, this morning, when, and he was listening to me practice, and uh, I pulled my ring off, and there's a groove around my finger where that ring has sat for 16 years. It just stays on there. Uh, that's, maybe you have the same groove in your finger as well. It's skinnier right there. But now, depending on what, what work you're in, maybe you're in medical field, maybe you have to put gloves on all day long, you take the rings off, like especially an engagement ring, it snags on your finger, on the gloves, and you take it off. And so many people have done what this trend is, and here they are on the screen. Maybe you've seen these before. Uh, this is one brand called Quelo, and uh, they're just silicone rubberized rings. They're comfortable, they're lightweight, you can work on trucks and cars with it, it doesn't matter. If you lose it, it's okay, they're, they're, they're inexpensive. But there's another trend with wedding bands these days, and uh, it, it makes the point here about God's indelible love for you and me forever and ever and ever. Some couples, when they get married, regardless of if they give a ring or not, they get one of these. Here's a picture of it. They tattoo right on their ring finger. Maybe it's the date of their wedding. Maybe it's just, I love you. Maybe it's their names, whatever it is. They put it indelibly there. Now, don't send me emails about tattoos. This is just an illustration. But the point is clear. It's a never-ending love indelibly printed on their fingers forever and ever and ever. No matter how good it is or how bad it is, their love is the same forever and ever. You can't take it off. And it's the same way as God shows his love for you and me. It's forever and ever for always that his love was shown for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But while the love of God is powerful and we look back and we see what he's done for us and we, we say, amen, we love what you did for us, God, through Jesus is powerful. Many of us still struggle with the fact of does he love us even now? Like we know his love is permanent, but is it a disappointed love? We know his love is permanent, but is he frustrated with us? He loves us all right, but is he is he annoyed that we keep sinning? Is, is he God that looks down at us in love and yet he raises his eyebrows and thinks, how can they still be struggling with sin even after all that I've done for them? And we wonder if God loved us first then, but does he love us still now? Is he embarrassed of us? Does he regret dying for us? You know, Paul does a marvelous job giving us confidence with this question and it revolves around one word. It's in the very first word of verse 9. It's the word since. I like this word since. It means that whatever happened before makes you confident about what's happening now or even in the future. Whatever happened back then gives you confidence about what you can feel now or in the future. Here's what he says, verse 9. He says, since we have now been justified by his blood. That happened back then. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him now? Verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, 
We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more now, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Are you getting this? Are you, are you getting this? Are you awake? It's a little warm in here, isn't it? I get you. He loved us back then, and because he loved us back then, we can believe that he loves us now. Even when we fail over and over again, we can be confident that he loves us and forgives us now too. Do you want to know the heart of Christ? Because if you do, he's not flustered with your sinfulness. Let's put it this way on the screen. You'll probably think of this line for quite a while. God's deepest disappointment is not, it is that you think he would be disappointed when you sin. His deepest disappointment is that you think he would be disappointed when you sin. His message is very simple. If you're in Christ, then your waywardness does not threaten your place in his love for you. The hardest part's already been accomplished. He already executed everything needed to secure your eternal happiness. And he did it while you were still an orphan. Now that you've been adopted, there's no way that anyone can unchild you from the family. We will be less sinful in the next life than we are now, but we will not be any more secure in the next life than you can be right now. His love for you doesn't ebb and flow, doesn't go up and down. His heart doesn't beat for you at one point and then he pulls back away. It's forever and always. In fact, one of my favorite verses that uh, I've just discovered in the last couple of years that means a lot to me is in 1 John chapter 5, where he says this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, not guessing, not wondering, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the best news ever. If you have accepted Jesus, then be secure in it because he loves you. You may know. And I think that the best way to wrap up this message and make the point is uh, there's only one way possible, and it's to talk about cars. I'm a car guy. I love them. Some of you are car guys and car girls as well. Uh, I've showed you pictures of my first car, but I'm going to show you again. This is my very first car. There she is. 1965 Volkswagen Beetle. I called her the blue blur. She goes so fast, you can't even see her go by. In fact, we made fun of how slow she really was. Uh, it could only go 65 miles an hour on the freeway. Not that it couldn't go faster, but if I did, then it would burn the motor up. So you keep it at 65. I was the guy in the right-hand lane with those little windows open to get a little bit of breeze because there's no air conditioning in those suckers. I love this car. I spent so many hours riding in this car, taking people places. Oh, we're going somewhere? Take my car. Let's go in my car together. Let's do this together. Uh, I've gone on dates in this car. I've made out in the back seat in this car. Sorry, Jen. I know you're watching online. Love you. This is a great car. Uh, I've got so many memories with this car. And I sold it. I sold it for a more modern car. A newer model. 1995 Honda Accord. Had air conditioning. And while it was nice to drive around in the air conditioning, I missed this car. Because this is the one that I really love. I love this one more than anything. In fact, a few years after I sold this car, I was on a, a Volkswagen website looking at pictures from a, a recent Volkswagen rally, and I saw this picture right here. That's my car. That's years after I, I sold it. Now, the new owner, they put new wheels on it. They put a new muffler on it, but that's, my, that's the blue blur. And I saw that picture. I said, I want it back. I want that car again. 
And even though it's been years and years and years and years, I still love that car. And if I found that car today, I would do whatever it takes to get that car because I loved it then. I love it even more now. And even if it has a missing headlight, I want it back. Even if it has a dent in the side of the door, I want that car back. Even if it has a messed up interior, I would buy it back in a heartbeat because I love that car, loved it then, and I love it now even more. There's nothing that could change my love for that blue blur. And while the devil wants to hold us down with guilt and feeling unworthy, it's Jesus that says these words to you this morning. He says, my grace was sufficient for you then, it's still sufficient for you now. I loved you back then, and I still love you now, and nothing can change the way I feel about you. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, as we've delved into the depths of Paul's writings to describe your love for us, may we understand the depth of how you feel about us, not just how you felt about us, but how you still feel about us now. God, we love you back, and we can't wait to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.